Welcome to Diggin' the Dharma, where we dig into the Buddhist Dharma and explore ways to bring these 2,500-year-old teachings into our lives. I'm Doug Smith of Doug's Dharma on YouTube and the online Dharma Institute. And I'm John Aaron, teacher at New York Insight Meditation Center and mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher and teacher trainer and founder of Space to Meditate. Good morning, John. Great to see you again, as always. Hello, Doug. How you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. How's life treating you? Uh, it's busy times, busy times, but all good. Yeah. Hopefully, I'll, I'll sustain my voice today so I can teach tomorrow all day. Oh, yeah. But, uh, you know, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> if not, you can just, you know, It'll be a <laughs> sit silent, in silence. It'll be a full day of silence, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's tomorrow. It's at the... I'm teaching at the beautiful New York Zendo, which is a gorgeous space, but they don't have a sound system. Uh, I mean, acoustically, it's fine. It should be no problem, but it's just, yeah. Do they need a sound system in a Zen space? They shouldn't. <laughs> That's why they don't have it. That's right. There you go. <laughs> uh, it's uh, all wood and, you know. Anyway, it'll be fine. Yeah. So where are we today? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, we practice the, the uh, precepts. Yeah, the practice precepts, which yeah. uh, we've talked about before, but I think it's mm -hmm. always... Worth coming back to, and I, I gave a talk on <clears throat> on them the other night. Uh, it was more generally on sila, on ethical mm -hmm. behavior, but the precepts are a major part of that. It's one of my favorite topics, as it turns out. I didn't realize it <laughs> until really? I started talking about it, because it is such an important part of practice, and uh, on almost every level, mm -hmm. um, you know, both and and you know, we've. We've talked a few weeks ago about the absolute and the relative, and it plays a role in that to some degree. It certainly plays a role in karma, obviously. It plays a role in sangha building, you know, everything. It plays a role everywhere. Yeah. And so um, <clears throat> I just find it a very deep well yeah. that we can always draw from. It's more than just the five precepts. Right, <laughs> Let's put right, it that way. sure. Yeah. I was going to say we should probably just go through the five yeah, precepts yeah. for those who may who may be unfamiliar with them. Yeah, and even before that, I think it's you know worth noting that in the Eightfold Noble Path, where you have these three areas: one of wisdom, one of meditation, and one of sila. Mm -hmm. There, there is you know right action, which is where the for the most part where the precepts fall, mm -hmm. right speech and right livelihood. Mm -hmm. And and the precepts kind of fall into all of those as right. well. So it's, you know, that's, I don't know if that's the first place where Sila is actually mentioned in the teachings. I mean, we don't really know how it evolved. Yeah, I mean, it, it's probably pre-Buddhist. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, well, these are probably ideas that were going around at the time, you know, and in a lot of the renunciant community, uh, ideas of, of right action and and so on. And as you say, the, the precepts sort of uh, uh, bridge over right action and right speech, because we have some of the right actions of not killing, sure. not stealing, uh, not committing sexual misconduct. You also have the right speech of not lying. The right uh, livelihood really isn't, I mean, at least not explicitly in the precepts, but of course, implicitly it's there. Well, yeah, implicitly um, right livelihood would be livelihood that doesn't break any of the precepts. <laughs> Exactly. Or cause others to break the precepts, mm -hmm. or, or yeah. fuel others. You know, I mean, that's a really interesting one. Yeah, uh, and we've talked about that before as well. But uh, you know, I think that's and and yeah, of course. I mean, and they're not. It's like not like these aren't common sense things. Mm. 
Well, I think that's what's good about them is that yeah. they're common sense. You know that they're not trying to yeah. you know <laughs> reinvent the wheel. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know. but what's I think probably what is different in the Buddhist context is that it's not they're you know they're 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 called the practice precepts. <clears throat> so it's not, and, and this we definitely touched on before. They're not commandments, mm-hmm. right? They're really mindfulness practices. Yeah, fully mindfulness practices. And when we see them as mindfulness practices, then our mindfulness never really stops. Mm. It was funny. I was I was a couple of weeks ago. I was teaching for New York Inside, and after the meditation, before I give any sort of talk, I usually ask if there are any questions. And there was one, one, one yogi said, well, yeah, I was wondering this morning, <laughs> I was going to ask you that, uh, you know, what percentage of the day are you mindful? <laughs> I said, does he want it to the digit? Or I don't know. <laughs> I said, I have no idea. I just know when I'm not. Yeah. And, um, but then well, if, if you if you know that you're not mindful, then you're mindful, right? Well, I mean, that's, that's true the, too. Yes, that's, that's the paradox. Uh, in that moment, in that moment, <laughs> yeah. you are. But I sure. said, you know, I said, you know, you don't have to keep a log; it's okay. But then the more I thought about it, and 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 you know, this week I was following up on a talk. I, I was fortunate because I got to do two talks on <clears throat> on Sila last week and this week. And you know, as I thought about it, it was like, oh, actually, yeah. I mean, when you when you integrate Sila fully. It becomes a mindfulness practice. <clears throat> and if you're constantly aware of your actions, then you're constantly mindful. If you're constantly tuning into whether your actions are skillful or unskillful, then you're mindful all the time, basically. Uh, because if you weren't, you might, you know, you might do some harm. Right. Um, yeah. To yourself or to another. Right. And, um, and so we have to kind of integrate all that. And so considering them as five mindfulness practices, which Thich Nhat Hanh actually, I think, you know, presented them in that way, they were mindfulness practices, you know, then, you know, that's really going to up the ante, mm. essentially. Um, sure. There's also the, the fifth precept. I've only mentioned, we've only touched on the first four here, because those four are mentioned in the Eightfold Path. The fifth precept of... of not abusing alcohol or not abusing uh, intoxicants, depending on how we translate that, right. it actually doesn't appear uh, explicitly in in the Eightfold Path. It's sort of separate. Right. Um, and so, some some scholars consider it maybe somewhat later. It's hard to know for sure. Yeah, and I, I, I think you, you're implying that the word that we translate as intoxicants is actually the literal word for alcohol. Yeah, I mean yeah. that's the. There are two words, um, and I've, I'll forget the the poly ones, but basically two words for different types of alcohol. Uh, one is a kind of a mead, another is a kind of a. I mean, it's not clear if it's if it's some sort of distilled spirit mm-hmm. um, uh, or whatever. But anyway, two words for alcohol, and you know, nowadays uh, we were touching on this before we started recording. Nowadays, I think we tend to think of that fifth precept as one that tells us to avoid intoxicants generally yeah. uh, because because they intoxicate the mind, because they make it more difficult to be uh, mindful and wise and all the rest. Uh, I, I remember, I, and I think it may have been when I was writing uh, my, uh, my short book that uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi was kind enough to look over. I had a passage saying that, and, and Bhikkhu Bodhi was uh, 
uh, sort of struck that out and said, no, no, we do. it doesn't mean intoxicants. It means alcohol. <laughs> because that's the word. Those are the words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, but you know, yeah. whatever, different, yeah. different interpretation. Of course. And, and electronic media, <laughs> social media. Yeah. Is a huge intoxicant these days. Sure. And, yeah. and dangerous intoxicant you know, in many ways, more dangerous than alcohol can be, you know, so I think, I think it's important. And, and I, you know, part of the problem with, with that is that we don't even realize how it's intoxicating the mind, how it's clouding the mind, which is a, a, yeah. another way of looking at it. And, you know, the other thing that, that came up for me the other day when I was mentoring somebody is our own narratives can become intoxicants. The, the stories sure. we tell ourselves can be major intoxicants and yeah. we don't even realize that, right? Until somebody, you know, knocks our head and we say, oh, oh, right. <laughs> you know, I've been living in that dream of my own stories and I and not acting appropriately as a result and certainly acting to harm myself at times. So, you know, when, when that happens, it's like, oh, that is a real moment of clarity when we start to see that. Mm-hmm. And so the, the flip side of, of, of that fifth precept is really cultivating mindfulness, you know, and so the opposite of intoxicant of an intoxicated mind is a mind that is mindful. And, you know, that's really key. And, and the other part of all of this, of course, is that as we live these precepts, we're creating a safe environment for those around mm-hmm. us. And I think that's you know, one of the most important parts of it is, uh, you know, especially when you're living in a sangha or living with a group of people or living in New York City, you know, you need to create a safe space. Yeah. And f- people need to feel safe around you. Yeah. And intoxication definitely can make a space less safe. Yeah. To my mind, some of the most dangerous intoxicants are indeed these kinds of, of false narratives that are... Now, of course, we'll all have our pet false narrative. Sure. But, you know, I think recently we talked about these phrases in the Dhammapada that, you know, he, what is it? Uh, he robbed me, he beat me, he abused me, you know. And that's the idea of a kind of a, of an intoxicating narrative that we get ourselves into of, you know, feeling whatever it is, you know, some kind of story that we, we tell ourselves that, that makes us hate another person um, because of whatever the story is that we, that we get into. And that can be extremely dangerous. Yeah, I think the, the issue there is, I mean, because obviously some, some people and maybe some of our listeners, you know, have, have grown up in abusive households and things. And, mm. and, and so the story is there. The question is, do we become a victim of our own story? Exactly. And, and, and that's the dangerous part, you know, and, and that's a big leap for a lot of people mm-hmm. um, to let go of that, you know, and, and it doesn't necessarily, it can't be bypassed necessarily. It's, you know, we right. have to sort of deal with it at the same time, you know, when we find ourselves being victim, being a victim of our own victimization, so to speak, mm-hmm. you know, then it's like, poor me. And, and we don't get further. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's really key. And then of course we bring that attitude and that mind state of, of hate into everything that we do. Um, and, and, and it just keeps cycling back. So it's like, mm. I was reading a book 
which I don't have on my desk here. I think I must have put it back on the shelf in the other room. It's a book on the precepts by a member of the Tree Ratna Buddhist Order, whose name has fallen out of my mind. Um, Join the club. Yeah, really. <laughs> and then, but the book is called, It's Not About Being Good, mm. in terms of the precepts, which is really in an interesting way of putting it. You know, mm -hmm. You're a bad person. You're a good boy. You know, whatever it is, you know, it's like, it's not about that. Right. Goodness arises. You know, it's, it's how we how we are in the world and, and how aware of how we are in the world, how aware we are and how subtle these practices can become, of course, in terms of doing harm to another, doing harm to an animal, taking that which is not freely offered, whatever that is, you know, and it, th those things get more and more subtle. And as we really truly practice these things and, you know, are mindful to that degree, it's amazing what we discover. <laughs> And then, of course, what's so important in all of this is the intention we're bringing to our actions. Those same stanzas that you just quoted from the Dhammapada or paraphrased from the Dhammapada are preceded, right, by the stanzas about intention. Mm -hmm. you know? yeah. So the question becomes, well, if, you, if your intention was good but your action was bad, what's going on? Or your action had a, bad, a harmful result, let's put it that mm -hmm. way. Well, some of that can be not through no fault of your own, of mm -hmm. course. You know, this is something that's not, to my knowledge, not really discussed in the early suttas, the possibility of a, you know, a well-meaning action that misfires uh, isn't really, isn't really discussed. But to me, that can be an example of, of delusion. Uh, you know, right. in other words, we, we think that our intention is pure because we don't have hatred, we don't have greed, but there's a third problem there, which is the problem of delusion. <laughs> you know, if we, engage with the world from a place of great delusion, of great intoxication in that sense, then even if we have what seem to us good intentions because we don't have greed or hatred, nevertheless, we can do great harm. Um, right. And so, we have to, I think we have to be open to that. That's where this idea of it's not about being good. In, in that moment, in that moment where we realize harm was done, even though our intention was not to harm, that's when the investigation is important, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, well, what, where did that action come from? You know, what was going on? And this came up in a question from the other night, of course, which is, you know, okay, so how do you know? What are the causes, you know, if, if it's a result of causes and conditions, how important it is, is it to know? What do you do with it when you figure it out? Um, oh, it's you mean how do you know what you whether you've done something wrong? Is that what no, mean? how do you know what the causes and conditions were that created the uns unskillful action? Ah, mm -hmm. right. In other words, how the intention the intention was there was no harm in the intention. The intention was you know one that was pure. I think that's actually one of the translations: pure intention, as opposed to impure intention, right? If the intention was pu pure, but the action was harmful. Well, but then the intention wouldn't be pure if it was partly through delusion. I mean, it would be somewhat pure. Right. Because it wasn't hate-filled and wasn't okay, greedy. Fair but enough. It was, yeah. Yeah. There, was a, there was an impurity in the delusion. Yeah. Um, and what caused the impurity? That's, or what was right. the impurity? What was the condition of the mm -hmm. that created the impurity? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, how important is it to know that specifically? 
Or could it just be some karmic seed that came to fruition and, you know, we didn't even realize what we were acting on? That's the delusion. Mm -hmm. It's like not being clear on that. Yeah, so that's really, that's very important. This notion that <clears throat> our intention may be clouded by our own delusion. Mm -hmm. That's what you're, what you're saying. Sure, um, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, what do we do with that? And how do we work with that? And how do we know it? Mm -hmm. no? Yeah. You know, when we, when we really take these practices in fully, then it slows everything down because we're not necessarily acting so quickly. We're not reacting. That's also one of the, I think one of the, I wanted to touch on a little bit is that some people I find get sort of turned off by discussions of the precepts because they seem kind of, they slow us down too much. You know, there's, right. there's a kind of a weight to them. There's a kind of a, you know, uh, I, some of that weight comes from sort of the baggage of commandment and so on, mm -hmm. uh, which we can perhaps overcome. But some of it is just there as this kind of weight of, oh, the should, you know, right. this kind of uh, school marmish kind of thing, you know, mm -hmm. of, of you should be doing that and you shouldn't be doing this. And and that can that can be taken as as just heavy, you know, and and slowing down slowing you down in a sort of a bad sense. I think it's important to point, point that out because a lot of people get turned off for that reason. Yeah, and then you know, what do we do? How do we? I mean, is there something wrong with being slow? I guess that's a question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, is there yeah. something wrong with slowing things down? Yeah, um, you know, do we always have to be reactive? Do we always? I mean, you know, I think more, you know, from a Zen perspective, right? It allows for the space of, of appropriate response. You know, whereas if we're not really clear, then the response is likely to be inappropriate. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I hear you. I think there's a certain sort of over-intensity that it seems to take. You know, in other words, that kind of intensity of mindfulness and presence can seem like a burden to yeah, a lot of people. Yeah, got it. Yeah. Ideally, it's an effortless practice. Ideally, it's a practice that you just, you do without thought. But in order to get there for most of us, you got to go through, oh, <laughs> through yeah. this kind of... Yeah. You know, and that can be a turnoff, you know, it's sort of like, oh, this is work, you know, and, and, you know, I thought that my practice was going to be a little bit, a little bit easier and a little bit right. uh, less. I uh, thought I was just going to be in bliss. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, um, <clears throat> yeah, that'll happen sometimes, but your bliss will be much more blissful, you know, <laughs> once, once you sort of realize, oh, yes, let me, let me check my... You don't. We don't check our ethics at the door when we go into bliss. You know. In fact, it's, right. In fact, some sometimes in our attempt to find that place of tranquility, some of our behavior really gets in the way. <laughs> you know, and it creates all the agitation in the mind. It creates the aversion in the mind, and and so it's really important to like practice these, and they are practices, and we just have to remind ourselves of that. And I mean, there are places where I think. It's tr things are translated as one should be this way. In fact, at the very beginning of the Metta Sutta, it's like one. Sure. But that's a translation. I don't know what the actual... No, I think they are in the Pali, it's the yeah. same. Yeah, no, I don't and, think And, you know, same. this is what should be done mm -hmm. by one who is, you know. It's interesting because so much of it is like how we hear things, right? 
Mm-hmm. If I say, yeah, you should do this, that's one thing. But if I say, you know, you should, you should do this, <laughs> that, that's yeah. a different thing. Um, well, there's also the beating ourselves up, you right. know. In other words, yeah. none of us are perfect. And the I think a, a certain way of hearing these kinds of precepts of these shoulds, one way of hearing them is as though we were speaking as, you know, perfected arahants here, you know, enlightened beings here on this podcast telling our <laughs> our deluded audience the way that they should behave as though we ourselves are perfect. And 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 I think we have to be careful not to be there. I mean, you know. Yeah. Uh, I have a Trust class us, of wine we're not. or two with dinner. <laughs> I have a class of two, yes. or two of wine with dinner. I'm not perfect um, in this, you know, from a traditional understanding of these precepts. Right. I've got my my holes and failings. Um, and you're not a monastic. So. And I'm not a monastic. Yeah. I mean, to be to be fair, even Bhikkhu Bodhi said, you know, a glass of wine at dinner is not a big, big problem. As long as <laughs> it's not going to make you, you know, as long as you're not drunk. I mean, you know. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, 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 there's there's room for, first of all, there's room for interpretation of these precepts. Yeah. Um, there are there more traditionalist interpretations and there are less traditional or, you know, uh, freer interpretations and more, uh, you know, uh, conservative interpretations. Sure, of course. And I don't think anyone should be beating themselves up for for their failings. Right. Um, that doesn't that doesn't I, they, help. I wouldn't even consider them failings. Well, you know, or, just, or just, yeah, just oh, the way we are. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Our hum, our humanness. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the things that that's really interesting because one of the things that came up the other night and and it had to do with the third precept of, of misusing sexuality, of course, was you know all the cases of that precept being not practice mm. by some really great teachers. Yep. The most famous of, of whom was probably Trungpa Rinpoche, but others as well. But, you know, and so this one uh, yogi asked, what do I do with that? I mean, the teachings are so amazing. And it was more like, you know, well, you don't shoot them at, you know, he was human. <laughs> the teachings are great. They're not necessarily his teachings. It's just the way he, you know, worded the teachings. That, that brought great clarity to these teachings. He was a flawed human. It's unfortunate, but most of us are <laughs> in some way. Yeah, you know, uh, it's only when someone claims that they're one thing when they're acting in another way uh, where it's problematic. And of course, that happens in almost every religion <clears throat> where power-hungry men usually. <laughs> Uh, these most of these religions are patriarchal in one way or another, and Buddhism is no exception, although it's certainly changing. You know, so that particular precept gets abused a lot, I would say, or misused. Mm-hmm. I mean, that no abused. The precept is transgressed. <laughs> yeah, you know, in the in in the worst possible ways, and and when it, when it's happened by a teacher, you know, the question is, how is it handled by the community? But that's a whole other discussion that uh, I don't think we need to have right now. But it's just the point. I think your point being that we are humans, yeah. And unless we're taking, you know, monastic vows, and even then, it's hard, right? Yeah, I mean, it's much yeah, because monastics challenge. aren't aren't necessarily no. arahants. I mean, no. I would say most vast of the majority aren't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so when learning about when, when teaching about these precepts i think my feeling is it has to be taught from a place of we're not saying we're perfect and we're telling you what to do because you know no it's it's coming from a place of, of feeling like this is 
that these are taught because they're useful to you, that they're that they're going to make your life easier <laughs> and the lives of everyone around you yeah. easier. And and they're great mindfulness practices, mm-hmm. period. I mean, it's yeah, just exactly. like, you want to cultivate your mindfulness 24-7? See, you know, integrate these precepts fully. Mm-hmm. And you slow down. <laughs> you slow down in your actions. You really look closely in terms of, will this harm me or another? You know, I know my intention is good, but is this the right action for that intention? I mean, that space between intention and action, I think, is really a place of a point where investigation is so important. Mm-hmm. Right? I feel the urge to, I feel the intention to do this. Is that right? You know, is is that, are, are you are you seeing that clearly? And if we live that way, it'll like be putting tight reins on our, our actions, but not, but hopefully in a kindly way, you know, so that we're saying, oh yeah. And then we were able to look back and, and check it out. Being open to constructive criticism from other people who may realize that we're acting from a place of delusion yeah. when we don't intend, obviously we, yeah. we don't intend to, but we all make mistakes. Yeah. We all yeah. do things, say things at times that are sometimes not well understood or, or, or accepted by other people because we're, we're not, we're not all knowing we're deluded sometimes. And so being many times, those, yes, many times. Yeah. 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 And I wouldn't even call it criticism, just feedback. So, you know, that action was, yeah. Yeah. Well, constructive Um, feedback. Um, I mean, there's destructive is not so good, but (laughs) the constructive is useful. And then that's the other person's intention that needs to be. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's an ongoing continual practice, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, bears fruit in so many different and beautiful ways. So. And if only the rest of society, all of society, sort of practiced these, we'd be in much better shape. But, yeah. Um, c'est la vie, as they say. Yeah, so that's... Uh, and one way to wake up... Oh, that, yes, of course. And, and not to be deluded <laughs> is to have a little coffee in the morning, and, and, and so you're not so sleepy. Yeah, throughout the morning. <laughs> throughout the morning, even throughout your day. <laughs> to a degree, yeah, it's true. Although I've, I've, um, yes, you don't want to have too much because yeah. then you get shaky, and then it's, then it's, then, then it's getting to sleep thing. can be hard. Then um, getting to sleep can be hard, exactly. Yeah. So, so but we do appreciate coffee, and uh, I know mm-hmm. I'm, I'm about to go get another cup myself. If you want to support this podcast and support us, you can do so by buying us a coffee, which you can do at digginthedharma.com. Yeah, and uh, we link truly there. appreciate that. And mm-hmm. you can become a member, get little perks, and leave a comment. We'd love to hear from people. So yeah, just practice right speech when you leave the comment. <laughs> Please, <laughs> we're, we're open. We're open to constructive yes. dialogue and and yes, well, criticism or not, whatever yes, you exactly. want. Yes, just do it kindly. <laughs> <Please>. <laughs> All right, thank you, Doug. This is a great discussion. And yep. until Thanks, next time. Keep digging the Dharma, folks. (laughs) Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on your podcast directory. And please check us out at digginthedharma.com where you can leave a comment, buy us a coffee, and even become a member. You can find out more about me, John Aaron, at johnaaron.net and Doug at dougsdharma.com. 